really long sermon. So then when Pastor Dave gets back from vacation, he can just preach a really long sermon and he'll be the hero. And so I hope you're ready for a really, really, really long sermon this morning. Um, if we can get the, the scripture text up, please, we'll, uh, we can read this together. Romans 10, starting in verse 14, 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, who has heard from us? Who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you have revealed yourself to us. And God, we pray that our hearts would not be disobedient. We pray, God, that our hearts would not, that we would not be a contrary people. Father God, we pray that as we seek you this morning and and day after day, week after week, we pray that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would receive your revelation, that we would let you be God, and that we would let you determine reality for us, God, that we would let you reveal it to us, and that you would work faithfulness in our lives, God. We cannot do that apart from you. We pray for your, the, the blessing of faithfulness to spring from the, your work by your Spirit in our lives today. We ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. There's ten, 10 essential gospel truths we're going to look at this morning. So it's a 10-point sermon. That's why it's going to be three hours. No. Um, 10 essential gospel truths we see here this morning. Gospel truth number one. The first step in salvation is crying out to the Lord. If we look at verses 14, you see it. How, can they, how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? It's the first of several rhetorical questions that you'll notice Paul asks. He asks these series of kind of rhetorical questions, trying to get to the point of the chain of events that happen in order for someone to be saved. And, And instead of kind of working from the beginning and going forward chronologically, he kind of moves backward, doesn't he, as he asks these questions. And, and so the first one is, hey, how is someone gonna believe unless they call on the name of the Lord? You know, it's very simple for, for, for some of us that, you know, or perhaps in the room we say, good grief, I don't even know what it is to be a believer. And the answer is, well, one of the first steps is calling on the name of the Lord. We're going to talk more about what that is. For others of us, you know, we, we, gosh, we can't even remember perhaps when we did. And one of my privileges as a pastor, you know, is to meet with people and to talk about their, their salvation story, Right. And, and some people, you know, you're like a Josh McDowell. You can, you can say, hey, in 1972 at 2.15 a.m., I got down, nailed on some brown carpet, and it was kind of hazy and humid outside, and I prayed to the Lord. Some of us are like that. We can remember exactly when it was that things clicked. Others of us, you know, we kind of more remember a season. We say, you know, I was in college, and I was wrestling through a lot of issues, and, and at some point, you know, that sophomore year maybe, I, I became convinced I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and, and somewhere in there I believed. Others of us, we, we say, you know, gosh, I, I grew up in the church, and, and I've heard these beautiful truths my whole life, and from the time I was in Miss Celine's Sunday school class... I remember hearing, you know, about who Jesus was, about why he died for me, and about what I was called to do in response to that. 
And, and whichever those three categories you are, that's, that's okay. As long as you know there was a time. Even if, you know, you don't remember it, you know, you don't remember the color of the room. If you remember, there was a time when I called on the name of the Lord because I believed. That's the essential. That's, that's the essential. Gospel truth number two. Calling on the name of the Lord is a cry for help. You know, um, you know we're, we're kind of taken back to, if you remember last week, Dave closed with Romans 10.13. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an exact quote from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And in this section, if you've noticed, Paul does it. Like, I think in, what, seven verses, Paul quotes the Old Testament, I think six times. I mean, he's just got a lot of very specific quotes. And if you were familiar with the Old Testament, like a lot of his audience would have been, every time he quotes one of these texts, you would have been reminded what was the original context that he's quoting from. Because clearly as Paul writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, he's writing this and he's thinking, I've got to tell him, you know, this reminds me of what's going on in Joel too. This reminds me of what's going on in Isaiah 65. This reminds me of what's going on in Deuteronomy. And so he'd make this quote, and as, as the original audience was reading it, they too would likely be thinking, wow, he pulled this from here, you know, from back in the Old Testament. What does that mean? Listen to the full context of Joel 2 that Paul pulls it from. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is Paul's backdrop for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, there, there are a lot of times, I don't know if you've seen them, sometimes I see kind of these little, little gospel tracts meant to be an aid to, you know, help evangelize someone. And some of these gospel tracts are just rubbish. I mean, they obscure the gospel rather than make it clear. And, and there's a lot of examples. I'll give the one that probably hits the closest home to us. And it's one, before I say it, that I think... Some of us maybe have used, and, and I remember at one point thinking, oh, that was the best way to summarize the gospel. And yet, and yet I wonder how much like Joel 2 it really is. You know, you've heard it, we, we tell little kids, we tell adults, well, you just need to accept Jesus into your heart. And it seems a, a really, a, a good phrase, accept Jesus into our heart. And yet as we look at Joel 2 and Romans 10, 13, it doesn't really seem like that's the background upon which Paul is talking about. You know, sometimes we, we, we present the gospel to someone and we talk about, well, accepting Jesus. And the idea is almost, latently, that, well, you know, I, I know, you know you think you're a good person. You know, things would just get better in your life if we could just add Jesus. You know, you know Carl, I know things are going hard in your life. But if we could just take your life and add Jesus, things would be better. You, just, you know, as if like our lives are some great Jenga puzzle where, you know, there's like some kind of hole and we just want to take the big J and plug them in there in the side and all of a sudden it'll be a, go from being a weak tower to a strong tower. And yet that, that's not the background. This Joel 2 verse, you look at it, it, it's a description that you, that you heard me read that would inspire the greatest American filmmaker of catastrophe movies. I mean, we've seen those movies, right? You see the movies where, you know, the volcano's erupting, Dante's Peak, and everyone's running for their lives. You know, we've seen the ones with the asteroids and the meteors coming down out of the earth. We've seen the one where, where the, the ice caps melt, and, the, you know, the, the water rushes down, you know, and, and there's this huge flood. We've seen the movies with tsunamis, the movies with earthquakes. That's kind of the visual that Joel gives us, isn't it? Volcanoes. He gives us this, the great and terrifying day of the Lord. He gives us this picture of a disaster flick. And if you've seen those disaster flicks, you know the narrative. There's this small group of people, maybe they're not together, that are running for their lives. Death is imminent. Death is likely. There's nothing they can do. And they need help. They need someone to rescue them. They need someone to take care of them. It's dangerous. And they need rescue from the danger. 
The calling upon God that we see in Romans 10, 13, and 14 is meant to be understood the same way. It's meant to be, forgive me, a call for help. It's meant to be a call for help, a cry to salvation. And it's worth asking, does our understanding of the gospel reflect the idea that calling on the name of the Lord is a cry for help? It's a cry for rescue. It's a cry for redemption. It's not just our life plus Jesus. It's we need salvation. That's what it is. How can they call on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Becoming a Christian by calling on the name of the Lord requires that you believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Now oftentimes in our, in our, as we walk around perhaps and we talk about the gospel, we're like the guy in the video and we don't want to use the S word. We want to speak in code language because we're afraid, good grief, if, if I offend this person, you know, they, they, might, they might want to run off. You know, they might not be interested if I paint the, the biblical reality of their condition. And, and so maybe I've got to do friendship evangelism. I've got to just be really nice to them over a long period of time and, you know, just talk about, well, just, just accepting Jesus and, and not really talk too much about sin. Sometimes we sugarcoat it with our kids. We sugarcoat it with our friends and our coworkers. We talk about how their life would be better if they just had Jesus. And that's not a wrong idea. But it's so easy to... But that idea, there's no offense in that idea. And the gospel is by nature offensive because it looks at people that are together and says, you're a mess because of your sin. That's the root of the gospel. You know, if you don't, you don't have to cry for help unless you realize you're in danger. It's only when you're there in your bedroom at 2 a.m. in the morning and hear something fall downstairs and you hear someone walking around on your first floor that you think, I should call 911, I'm in danger. If you don't know that you're in danger, there's no reason for a savior. The, pe the only people that need a savior are people that need to be saved. For the rest of us, well, it's a, it would be an option. Everyone under the sun, even little kids, understand the basic concept of the gospel. They understand the concept of transgression. I did wrong. Yes, you did wrong. And there's a consequence for that. They understand that. They understand the idea of forgiveness. They understand the idea, I think, even of someone being in their place. The basic ideas of the gospel, we can make sense to even a four-year-old if, if we just simply are bold enough to be biblically faithful to what the text says. The gospel at its root is a cry for rescue, a cry for redemption, a cry for salvation arising from the conviction that we believe we are sinners in need of a Savior and we have a God willing and able to rescue us from everything we've done and everything that it means for us. That's the God we worship. Gospel truth number three. The gospel must be shared verbally. You might have heard the phrase so commonly attributed to Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times Use words if necessary. It's a quaint phrase. It's the kind of thing I imagine painted in black on some like faux piece of like, you know, wood that you know, you'd find in home goods or marshals. The kind of thing you, know, you could take and you could hang it up, you know, over, over your dining room table. Preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary. If it's true, it has an extraordinary impact for your life. For, for your life as an, as an evangelist, doesn't it? Because if it's true, it means that you can be sharing the gospel with people without ever opening your mouth. You can come home at night and say, I shared the gospel today. And say, why did you talk? No, I didn't talk to anyone. I just lived a good life. You can share the gospel with someone with Jesus and sin never entering the picture. So if, if, if you're those of us, perhaps not altogether too different than me, who you're nervous you're an introvert. Maybe it's because you're an introvert. Maybe it's because you're like me. You're just you're struggling. I've got to talk to that person. <laughs> Maybe it's because you're like, I don't want to offend this person. If, if Francis's quote is true, then this is good news for you. But is it true? Is it, can, can we share the gospel without words? 
as the quote suggests. Well, you know, the quote is riddled with problems historically and biblically. Historically, it just does not match Francis of Assisi's life. His earliest of biographers have pointed out that Francis preached all the time. Francis was like Pastor Dave. Francis preached on average five times a day in five different villages. This was a guy on the move. You read Francis' biography, and as he's training future preachers, he says, don't preach until you get this, this divine unction, until you're worked up over sin and over their need of salvation, and then go and preach the truth to them. Francis was a preacher. So, so we've got this great phrase that you know, you'll see, I, I see on sta- Facebook status updates sometimes that has no basis in historical fact from the guy that it's attributed to. It has problems biblically too. What does Paul say? He says, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The, what, what's the unspoken answer? They can't. They won't. You can't call upon the name of a Lord if you don't know who the Lord is. And you don't know what he did and why you should call upon him. You can't call upon someone you've never heard of. You can't. Former president of Wheaton College, Dwayne Litfin, writes, it, quote, It's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. Is there an important place for good deeds? Absolutely. Absolutely. What does Jesus say? He says, let your good deeds shine before men. They might, you know, see them and praise your Father who's in heaven. We're commanded to do good works. We're commanded to live out our faith. Absolutely, it's important. But we can't confuse the gospel with the fruit that the gospel bears in our lives. You know, if you're in the position where, where you sin against someone deeply, and because they have experienced the joy of their forgiveness in Christ, they find the capacity to forgive you freely and faithfully. They have not preached the gospel to you, but they've done an amazing job of living out the fruit of the gospel in their lives. And If you spend week after week sacrificially supporting and loving and building up other followers of Christ, because of what Christ has done for you, you're not preaching the gospel to them. But you're doing an amazing and important job of living out the fruit of the gospel in your life. It it sounds like a small distinction, but it's important for whether or not we can say faithfully, yes, I am sharing the gospel. Yes, they have heard the gospel. The gospel is not something that we do. It is something that God has done and which we have the honor and the privilege of sharing. The gospel is not something that we do. It is something that we respond to and that we let completely permeate our heart, our minds, our actions as we let it bring forth like a great tree and affect our lives. The gospel is something that changes us completely, yes. But it's not something that we do. Gospel truth number four. Missions exist because worship doesn't. It's a quote that John Piper makes, and I think it is quite true of this text. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Go to verse 15. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Every once in a while you get the question. I had this question when I first became a believer. And I started going to church, and they got up one Sunday morning, and you know, they said, okay, and they had this like little thermometer, you know, on the thing, and they said, you know, this is our faith promise goal, and they had numbers on the side, and it was, you know, people making pledges to send missionaries around the world until we could, we could have the thermometer go off the charts, right? And I said, why are we doing this? It was just an innocent question. I was like, why? I, you know, I didn't grow up and going to church. Why, why are we, why are you asking me to give to send people to, you know, Tajikistan? Why? It's a fair question. Why do we pay to send people to college campuses, you know, through Campus Crusade and InterVarsity? Why, why, do, we, why do we pay to send people, as you, you've seen in the church the last few months here, we've, we've brought missionaries up and talked about their going, why do we do that? We support missions locally and globally because we want to see the worship of God increase. 
We want to see it greater than it is now. How is someone going to believe unless someone is sent to share the gospel with them? Do you know that New England would be considered an unreached people group according to modern mission statistics? Under 2.5% of people on a weekly basis go to church in New England. That's including Catholic and Protestant churches. 2.5%. Vermont is the lowest with 1.7%. Massachusetts is a little higher than that. Connecticut, Connecticut, we're actually, I think, the best of the bad bunch. We're an unreached people group. Why do we send... Because some people don't know. Germany today, you, go, you can go to the area where Luther had his greatest reformation today. Missiologists will say they need an entirely new reformation because there's these areas in Germany where people don't even have, have not ever heard of Jesus Christ. If you go into this area in Western Europe where Martin Luther used to preach and you go into a village, they will say, we've never heard of Jesus. You might as well be in the jungle of Brazil. What missions exist because worship doesn't. You know, I had the privilege of sitting down a few weeks ago with um, a young lady. She's she just moving down here to start a ministry through university on a local college campus. And this would be the first evangelical student ministry on this college campus. And I was excited as I prayed with her because I thought, I want to see the worship of God increase there. I want to see people know who God is. I want to see them know the depths of what He's done for them, that they could have life. I want to see, I want to see their lives transformed as they come to a saving faith. I want to see them transform that campus. I want to see them transform this community. I want to see the worship of God increase. And, but yet the only reason she's here is because some, you know, some ch- the church where she came from and some other churches said, we're going to send you to this college campus that has no evangelical presence because we want to see the worship of God increase there. You know, we are not trying, you know, so when you hear us talk about faith promise, you know, here, let me be clear, we're not trying to just send people because we feel like it's cool or we're trying to give them a great vacation. Or we, you know, we, or we want to work you into being the 99%, you know, um, by, you know, taking your offerings for that. That's not what we're trying to do. We want to, we give to faith promise because we want to see the worship of God increase. You know, Habakkuk says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the heavens and the earth. The glory of the Lord already fills the heavens and the earth. God's glory is made known. But we want to see the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fill the earth, that people know Him, they know His greatness, and they praise Him for that. I'm trying to send people to increase the worship of our King. And there's a second dimension to this as well. The sending is not something simply and only reserved for, as Pastor Dave likes to call them, professional holy people. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been sent. Jesus says in the book of, in the Gospel of John, as the Father sent, has sent me, so I am sending you. Having an evangelism team in our church can give the false impression that you only have to be a certain kind of Christian with a certain kind of gifts to, to be called upon to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that would be a false impression. The purpose of our evangelism team is to facilitate opportunities to make it easier for you to go share the gospel somewhere, like at a road race or at Wayne from Maine, and to, to equip you to share the gospel by offering classes so that you can just, as you interact with your coworkers and your family, their job is to give you the tools, but, but your responsibility is to take advantage of those tools. God has sent you as a missionary into your family, into your place of work, into your school. God has sent you as a missionary there, to share the gospel there. And I'd encourage you, think like a missionary. Think about the culture of that of your neighborhood, the culture of your office, the culture of your school. Think about the people that you might have the opportunity to share the gospel with. And do what a good missionary does. Don't just wait for it to happen and think, well, eventually an opportunity will present itself. You've got to create an opportunity. Gosh, I, I can remember times when I created opportunities with my friends to the point of embarrassment. We would go on road trips. I'd go on road trips with some of my unbelieving friends. And I'd wait, like in the morning we'd be there. And I'll be honest with you, I took out my Bible to read as they were like getting ready, just so they'd see me reading my Bible. Because I knew then they would say, what's that? Why are you reading it? And I can remember my one friend, have you read that already? Yeah. Why are you reading it again? 
and bang, an opportunity was presented. We've got to, we've got to be intentional to create opportunities. They don't always just fall on our laps. You know, it says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Better translation for preaching here would be the word herald. How are they to hear unless someone heralds it to them? Herald's like an old English word. You know, a herald is someone who, who, who does what? They announce something that's happened, right? You know, a herald would announce it. You know, so like, you know, I could, driving home Friday night, I could have heralded the fact that the Yankees won 10 to 3, and I was a happy guy. <laughs> um, you know, a herald announces the things that have happened. Every one of us is called to herald the great work that God has accomplished in Christ. You don't have to be a preacher to do it. You just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Gospel truth number five, sharing the gospel is glorious. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach or herald the good news. Here again, you know, Paul, Paul's making an exact quote from Isaiah ch- chapter 52. And, and, and so we're gonna, let's look at the fuller context that most people would have had on their mind when they read this originally. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes the salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, lift up your voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Amen. That's why it's... That's why the feet of those who share the good news are beautiful. Because they're representing the greatness of the salvation of what God has done. And now it's so easy for us to shy away from sharing the gospel. I think if many of us are honest, we would say, gosh, when I share the gospel with someone, I feel like I've got dirty feet. Because I feel like I'm going to say something that they don't want to hear. I'm going to say something they're going to find offensive. I'm going to say something that they don't believe. And, you know, and I really want to be tolerant. You know, and, and so we, we you know, we're, we're afraid perhaps, am I going to lose the relationship? We're, we're afraid of what's going to happen. And so I think very few of us would say, yeah, you know, sharing like, you know, how beautiful are my feet when I share the gospel? That's not, this is a case where that's not our perception, I think, if many of us are honest. And yet it is also a case where perception does not equal reality. Think about it for a minute. I bet you everyone in this room would say one of our favorite worship services is a service when people are getting baptized. Maybe it's a Thanksgiving Eve service. Maybe it's another service throughout the year because it is an amazing opportunity to hear the transformation that God has exerted as he's brought his salvation to bear on someone's life. And so whether it's someone who grew up in the church or someone who spent 50 years outside of the church, we love when we see, look at how God saved this person. And, 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 we, and we love seeing them just rejoice in Christ and what Christ has done. In those moments, what are we? We are watchmen on the walls rejoicing in the great salvation that God has worked in Christ. It's a glorious thing. I love it every time I hear the gospel communicated by someone. Every time. Because I'm sitting there thinking, that is the gospel that is saving me right now. That is the gospel that saved the Apostle Paul. That is the gospel that is saving people from every tongue and tribe and nation. I do not want to be ashamed of that gospel because that gospel is my life. That gospel is my hope. That gospel is my strength. That gospel is my song. It's a glorious moment. You know, every time you share the gospel, your feet are beautiful. Regardless of whether the person surrenders their life to Christ there or they spit in your face. Because you are heralding the great work that God has accomplished in Christ. And you are declaring your great love for your Savior. Your feet are beautiful. 
Now, think, I, I'm sure if you thought, there is someone you can think of this very week where you say, here is someone that I could share the gospel with. And wouldn't it be cool, wouldn't it be cool if, if sometime between today and next Sunday, you're there one night, and you know, you're kind of getting, you know, you're getting ready for bed, you're washing your face, you're brushing your teeth, and you look down at your feet, and you think, man, my feet look good. Man, my feet look beautiful. Man, my feet are shining, and they're fragrant, and everybody should want to take a sniff. <laughs> because I shared the gospel this week. My feet are beautiful. Gospel truth number six. When we communicate the gospel faithfully, Christ is working through us. You know, verse 14 again, stepping back, says, How are they to believe in whom, uh, him of whom they have never heard? How are they to believe in whom, him of whom they have never heard? Most commentators, I think, agree that they want to take the word of out of the sentence. And, and, and pay, pay attention, notice how the sentence would sound differently if we took the word of out. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? See the distinction there? There's a difference between saying, how they believe unless they hear about Jesus, versus saying, how they believe unless they hear Jesus. Paul's writing this, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's not walking around talking to people directly anymore. And Paul's saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who hear Jesus. Hey, how they believe unless they hear Jesus. It sounds a lot like Jesus in Luke 10 when, when Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Think about that. Jesus is saying that when you faithfully communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not the one doing the talking. He is. When you faithfully communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, people aren't hearing you, they're hearing Him. Now, I think this is mind-blowing. Because for some of us, we walk around thinking, what do I have to contribute to the advancement of God's kingdom? We don't feel very gifted. We don't feel very equipped. We don't feel very special. And here Jesus is saying, every t He's saying, you have this, the, the intimacy you have with me is, is magnified, if you will, every time you share the good news because I'm speaking through you. And the intimacy I have with you is not contingent upon their response. Notice that. If they hear you, they hear me. me. If they reject you, they reject me. He says, either way, regardless of the outcome, that moment when you share the good news, we are like this. I am speaking through you. You are my vessel. You are my conduit. I'm working through you. It's amazing that God would use us for His glory in that way. Now, you know, this is one of the things I think is the greatest indictment of modern American evangelicalism. Because, you know, modern American evangelicalism says, well, you know, it's, you know, we need to tell people about Jesus, but we need to do a whole lot more. You know, and, he, and Paul says here, faith comes through hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. And so we've had the church growth movement and the seeker-sensitive movement say, well, yeah, we need to talk about Jesus, but we can't say a whole lot of controversial things because that'll turn people off. So there's certain doctrines we'll never talk about. You know, and they say, well, you know, we have to have a certain kind of music or no one's really going to be saved. And, you know, they've said, well, you know, we've got to, you know, we need to have a, a certain amount of spare seats in the room because otherwise no one's going to get saved. You know, it's like we need, we need to talk about Jesus, but then plus all these other things. It's ludicrous. Faith comes through here and here comes through the word of Christ. If we want to see more people surrender their lives to Christ, our call is to simply faithfully communicate the message and leave the rest to the Lord. Gospel truth number seven. Don't think anyone is beyond the gospel's reach. We'll go to uh, verse 18 to 21. Verse 18 to 21, he says, uh, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
You know, you've probably seen, we're going to move through this piece quick, that, you know, throughout the book of Romans, Paul's kind of doing this overall apologetic to say, hey, God's plan has not changed. And he's dealing with Jewish kind of incredulity over the fact that the Gentiles would now be included. And you saw that in chapter, all the way back in chapter 1 and 2, right? You know, the the Jews are sitting there, yes, the the Gentiles deserve the wrath of God to come upon them. Then Paul busts into chapter 2 and he says, hey, you're just as bad. And that's where the shock would have come. You know, you can see it. The backdrop here is Paul's addressing this Jewish idea. What are you talking about that God is going to save the Gentiles? They're not his people. They're pagan idolaters. They want nothing to do with God. Why would God ever want to save them? They're beyond the reach of God. We're the people of God, not them. And so here Paul quotes Deuteronomy. And think about this, because Deuteronomy written about 1,600 years before Paul's writing the book of Romans. 1,600 years before Paul's writing Romans, before King David was ever around, before Solomon was ever around, before the nation of Israel split. 1,600 years before that, God is speaking to Moses and saying, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. 700 years in Isaiah, 700 years before Paul's writing, God's talking about, hey, I'm going to be found. I'm going to reveal myself to those who want nothing to do with me. It has always been the eternal plan of God to bring the Jews and the Gentiles alike through Christ. It's never been God's plan. God didn't... Saving the Gentiles was not plan B. Jesus Christ coming to earth to die on the cross was not plan B. It's not like God said, well, this project failed. They couldn't obey my law. Now I'm going to try this. That is not the living eternal God. Before the nation of Israel even messed up, God was saying, yeah, you know what? I'm going to end up bringing a nation that's not even a nation of faith. I'm going to bring a people that you think are foolish and that are foolish to faith. It was always the plan of God. And I think this is important for us because we can do a lot, the same thing as the Jews did. What the Jews are essentially doing was saying, the Gentiles are beyond the reach of the gospel. They want nothing to do with God. They're apart from Christ. They're beyond God's reach. Sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we write people off. We write people off. We say that person is beyond the gospel. And generally what we mean by that is it's readily apparent that they have this very public sin as opposed to someone else who has this very private sin. And we make this ridiculous distinction that, you know, someone who is, you know, this person is beyond the reach of the gospel because their sin is very public. And that somehow they're, they're further away than the person that they're just really good at hiding their sin. It's a false distinction. Everyone is far from the gospel until they're in Christ. And no one is beyond the reach of the living God. No one. Be encouraged. There's some of us, you know, I can think of people that I have been praying for since the week I got saved. And some of them have been saved and some of them have not. And it is easy to get to the place where you look at that. Maybe, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend and you think, you just start to give up hope. Perhaps you see them make a couple, you know, declarative decisions. I want nothing to do with Christianity. Maybe they declare themselves, I am now an atheist. Maybe they, again, they just start living this, this publicly sinful lifestyle. And it's so easy for us to say, I give up, I lose hope. We, we, no one, if God could save the Gentiles, if God could save you, and he could save me, God can save anybody. You know, I mean, the stories of the people, some of the, the greatest salvation stories are the people that were very far, that seemed very far from Christ. And then, bang, God turned them like a quarter. I mean, that's how C.S. Lewis was. That's how Josh McDowell was. On a mission to discredit Christianity. And all of a sudden, they went from hating the things of God, being very far, to getting down and surrendering their lives to Christ like that. No one is beyond the reach of God. Gospel truth number eight, God is the seeker. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Sometimes I've heard people talk, you know, about salvation, and they talk about it in a way that it makes it sound as if, you know, God is is so 
intent on not violating our free will, that he is sitting on the edge of his seat, waiting to see if anyone is going to come to faith. He's just waiting. Because he doesn't want to influence our decisions at all. And so he's just sitting there on the edge of his seat, waiting. I mean, if you follow that train of thought to its conclusion, it's possible that Jesus Christ could have died and no one could have been saved. If God is just sitting up there thinking, well, I can't interfere at all, I've got to wait to see what they do. Let's see how it goes. It's rubbish. Here, here is God saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not want anything to do with me. This has been the way of God from the very beginning. God comes into the life of Abraham. Here's Abraham living in a pagan culture, in a pagan house, worshiping pagan gods, and God draws him out. Elijah gets all bent out of shape after he's following God and says, God, there's no one else. No one else is following you. There's just me. And God says, I have kept 7,000 from myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Romans 3, Paul says, None is righteous. No one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. I hate the phrase when we say, oh, this person's a seeker. There is no one that's a seeker except the living God, who other writers have called the hound of heaven, faithfully moving to redeem those whom he has set his love and affection upon. Now, from a physical perspective, of course, there is a moment, again, I like to call it from a horizontal perspective, there is this moment when any of us that are in Christ would say, I became convicted of my sin. I became convicted that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I longed for Jesus. And I surrendered my life to Him. And, 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 the, book, and the Bible talks about that physical, that horizontal perspective. You know, we see it in Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up, he preaches the gospel in the first public time, and it says the audience was cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe. There's that horizontal perspective. But the Bible also teaches a vertical perspective and says unless this top-down, from God us, vertical perspective happens, the horizontal one will never happen. Because none of us are seeking after God of our own volition. Unless God first seeks us, none of us are ever going to surrender our lives to Him. We need Him to do something. We need Him to work before we can do anything. You know, Pastor Dave said something really great at the beginning of this series. He said, the more we appreciate the depth of our own sin, the more we appreciate and we are in awe of the wonder of God's salvation. It's the same here. The more we appreciate the fact that of ourselves, none of us would want anything to do with Jesus. The more we stand in wonder and say, I thank you, God, that you saved me. Gospel truth number nine. The gospel is a thing to be obeyed. Verse 16 tells us the reason why more Jews have not become Christians. Quote, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Is there room in your understanding of the gospel for this concept of obeying? There should be. There really should be. The call to obedience is a major theme throughout the book of Romans and Scripture as a whole. In Romans 1, Paul declares that his mission is to bring about the, quote, obedience of faith through the gospel. Romans 2.8, he promises distress for those who do not obey the truth. Romans 6.17, he says, quote, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and then having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. The gospel is not something that we can merely respond to intellectually. But it, it, though it is that, it is more than that. The gospel is something that we commit to with our wills, that we are called to obey. Something we're called to obey. Throughout the warp and whiff of, whiff of Scripture, we see this refrain, refrain. Repent. Repent. You know, Isaiah calls people to repent. Jeremiah calls people to repent. Ezekiel calls people to repent. John the Baptist calls people to repent. Jesus calls people to repent. We see it everywhere. We see God saying, I want you to literally turn 180 degrees around and walk towards me. Everyone in this universe today is either walking away from Jesus or walking towards Jesus. There is no middle ground. 
And he calls people to repent. You know, he says, quote, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're called to confess what Lord. We don't use the word Lord. I use the word boss. We're called to confess Christ, your Lord, which means we're saying, I'm not. My parents are not. My boss is not. My spouse is not. Jesus, you are Lord. You know, there's this popular fiction in some areas of, of, of church in America today that you can have Christ as your Savior, but not as your Lord. You know, that is to say, you can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, and then go on and live a life still completely apart from Him. And you can look back and say, well, I prayed the prayer. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe that, you know, I believe He forgave me of my sins, and I got my fire insurance, and now I'm all set. And that someone could look at our lives and say, you've been a believer 10 years, has your life changed all? And we could say, no, not really. But I did pray that prayer. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have said that, not in so many words. And said, well, I prayed this prayer. And I say, well, you, but, but they say, no, I, I, I don't go to youth group. I have never gone to church. I don't read the Bible. No, there's no sin that God has helped me put to death. I know I got to do better. But I know I'm saved because I prayed this prayer. It's rubbish. We're not saved because of our good works. <laughs> Hear me clearly. We're not saved because of our good works. But repentance is a needed portion of conversion. It's a needed... We're never going to be sinless this side of heaven. But we repent. We turn. We say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. You're the boss. I surrender. I give it over. I, I am no longer going to, make, going to make myself the standard of right and wrong. I'm going to let you tell me what right and wrong is. And I'm going to try to, and I'm going to make that my standard. I'm going to let you tell me how I should spend my time and my money and how I should construct my relationships. And I'm going to let you tell me because you're God and I'm not. I remember when, you know, when I got saved, I didn't know everything that being a Christian was, but I got that idea. Okay, Jesus, you're boss and I'm not. And I can remember reading through the Bible for the first time and seriously coming upon things that were part of Christopher Hemrick's everyday life and saying, Oh, God tells me that's wrong. I thought that was just normal. And, and there's a moment. Who's God? Am I God? Am I still going to try to be God? Or am I going to let God be God? Gospel truth number 10. Don't presume. Saddest part of this backdrop with the Israelites is that they presumed that they were all set. You know, we see Paul talking about it throughout the length of the book of Romans. We, we're the people of God. We're the children of God. We're the ones who got the Old Testament. We're all set. We see it in Romans chapter 2. Yeah, those other people over there, they're really bad sinners, but we're all set. We can never presume. can't presume that simply because you come to this church, you're saved. You can't presume that be, simply because you grew up in a Christian home that you're saved. You can't simply presume that because you went forward at some camp and raised your hand as they were singing the eighth chorus of Just As I Am, that you are saved. We can't make those presumptions. You can't presume that we've got a lot of time to think about it and figure it out. Because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Don't presume. Take the opportunity, the minute it's presented, to surrender your life to Christ, to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and to confess, Jesus, you're God, I'm not. I want to follow you. You know, at the beginning of this series um, in January, we challenged everyone in the church to learn how to share the gospel in about 60 seconds. And it has been great as a pastor to watch people, to get back to me. Some people say, I can't do it, it can't be done. And they get other people say, I, I can, I'm trying, but I can't. I've had other people come to me and say, you know, I YouTube for about half an hour, and I found someone to do it in five minutes, is that okay? Or do it in three minutes, is that okay? And, and I think it's a handy thing because, you know, the, the Bible tells us, always be prepared to give it an answer for the reason in which the hope we have, right? And so it's good for us to say, on the spot, I could share a succinct version of the gospel. So Here's one way to do it. And for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard it like this, and you may respond to it this morning. And for others of you, this may just be, just be the thing you hear and you rejoice in because it's the gospel that saved you. And hopefully all of us, you'll see it's in your bulletin as well, maybe it'll equip you 
to share the gospel in about, my wife told me it was a little more than 60 seconds, um, in about 60 seconds. If we could get that on the screen. This is how I would do it. The gospel is the news of how rebels can receive redemption. When we think of redemption, we probably think of the cans that we redeem at the grocery store, which really aren't worth a whole lot. But the redemption made possible through the gospel is not talking about cans, it's talking about you and I. The Bible declares that God made everything in the universe and that he is the just, mighty, and loving king to whom we owe our allegiance and who desires to be in a wonderfully intimate relationship with us. Our first parents walked away from that relationship when they decided they didn't want God as their king and they became rebels. Their decision has brought untold sickness, death, and disaster to the universe and they deserve to be judged for it. But we are on the line we sin by nature and choice every day as we pursue our autonomy ignoring the call of our king and the wages of our sin is death this is horrible news but it is the black backdrop upon which the good news of the gospel shines forth the good news of the gospel is that because of his great love for us Jesus Christ has died in our place paying the penalty for our sins so that instead of rebels, we might become the children of God, children of the King. God calls us to repent of our sin and to look to Him as our King, accepting Christ's work on the cross for us and thereby entering into a joyful eternity of a living relationship with God under His rule. The gospel is the good news of how all of us who repent and believe can be redeemed. That's the gospel. How much time, Sergio? Just over a minute. I saw him timing me. So, so I'm going to challenge you right now. You think of, you don't like that? Become equipped to share the gospel in a minute. Come talk to me. I'll take you out for lunch. How's that for a deal? I didn't tell you, I didn't tell you where. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you did not scorn the shame of the cross. We thank you that you are the God that seeks and saves the lost. We thank you and praise you that you're not waiting in heaven to see who's going to respond to you, but that you are actively pursuing those whom you are going to redeem. Pray, Father God, that you would build up our faith and help us to walk out of here this morning with joyful hearts over who you are and what you've accomplished in Christ. We're in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.